WeWork went from being one of the hottest companies around. The co-working giant WeWork is amongst the most valuable startups in the world. To the gutter in just a few months. Why do they have to just keep going down, down, down? What is like, you know, name your price? Money. I, I know, but we don't want to give them money. They're just going to screw up the market. Over the past six episodes, we've chartered the meteoric rise and catastrophic fall of WeWork and its founder, Adam Newman. It's a cautionary tale about what happens when the next big thing turns out to be not. Everyone hopes they could spot a good company from a bad one, a unicorn from a donkey. But could they? It's difficult to imagine that people could be this stupid. And this is stupidity. This isn't irrational. This isn't, this isn't uh, marking the time. This is stupidity. To help us sort fact from fiction, I'm going to be speaking with Scott Galloway, professor of brand strategy and digital marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business, and he's consulting producer on this series. Cults are overinvestment in an individual I think is dangerous. And typically, just historically, we look at cults. Cults typically don't end well. Jeffrey Epstein is dead. Before as many victims, the search for justice is still alive because Epstein had help, lots of help. And on the newest season of Broken, host and investigator Tara Palmieri follows Epstein's survivors as they track down those who enabled and witnessed his crimes to hold them accountable. Broken, Seeking Justice is a podcast that documents the journey of these women to find out what justice looks like in their lives, including their battle against the government to change how it treats victims of child sex abuse. They're naming names, they're seeking justice, and sometimes they even find it. Listen to Broken, Seeking Justice wherever you get podcasts. From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is a bonus episode of We Crashed. Scott Galloway teaches brand strategy and digital marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business. He's the author of two books, The Four and The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. He writes a weekly newsletter called No Mercy, No Malice, and he is the co-host of Pivot, a news commentary podcast. And in all his spare time, he's a consulting producer on our podcast, We Crashed. Scott, thanks so much for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. This has not been a good uh, 12 months for the SoftBank Vision Fund. I mean, once upon a time, everyone was singing its praises, right? Masayoshi Son was called uh, the world's most prolific unicorn breeder, and everything seems to be falling apart. I-, I also host a show called Business Wars Daily, which does a quick take on business every weekday. We've done a few stories on SoftBank and their other investments. For example, we had a story uh, on the shutdown of Brandless, even though SoftBank had given them, a, I think it was, what was it, $100 million, as I recall, something along those lines. Do you think that there is a larger reckoning coming for SoftBank? Oh, absolutely, David. At the end of the day, this is a fairly simple story of an alternative investments company that just had too much capital to deploy. And when too much capital chases an asset class, returns go down. And that that's true of anything. And so when you have a company with more, you know, I, th- I believe this company or the Vision Fund had more capital to deploy than was deployed in all of venture capital globally in 1996. And you had one company trying to do this. So the Vision Fund is now in the midst of the most massive clowns behind an elephant scooping up, you know, unicorn feces. I mean, I, it's <laughs> it's hard. 
Yeah. <laughs> what an image. <laughs> and it's it's almost that the conspiracy theorist in you thinks, was this some sort of crazy spy versus spy attempt to repatriate five years of oil wealth from the kingdom back to America? <laughs> Granted, it was redistributed unequally. But it's difficult to imagine. I don't use this word lightly. It's difficult to imagine that people could be this stupid. And this is stupidity. This isn't irrational. This isn't... This isn't uh, marking the time. This is stupidity. Putting $300 million into a dog walking app with senior management that, as far as I can tell, had no experience as operators. Investing a quarter of a billion dollars in technology to make pizzas robotically. I mean, there is, it's just difficult to imagine. The, the, the gestalt here seemed to be the crazier, the better. And brandless was one of their less crazy ideas, the notion of a private label company that might have a good product and sell the product at a discount because they weren't investing money in branding. I get it. But the reality is, it okay, they delivered on their promise to not have a very good brand, but it also had a mediocre product. And they burned through capital. And you're seeing, you're seeing this everywhere. And if you look at Oyo, I mean, that's kind of the next we work. The toxic cocktail here is SoftBank on top of real estate. And uh, you have Oyo, which is, it turns out, a 26-year-old whose only previous experience was selling SIM cards, who tried to roll up globally the budget hotel space and overpaid for spaces. That's falling apart. You also, what'll be interesting is when they look at other things, whether it's Compass, a roll-up of brokerages, or Open Door, which is this i-buying space. But we're just starting to look underwater and see the two-thirds of the catastrophic iceberg that is the Vision One Fund. It strikes me. I mean, a lot of it is the kind of faith that outsiders put in it. And in part, I think, part of this, it seems, and maybe I'm wrong, but you tell me, the, the whole notion of unicorn has become a kind of brand itself, in a sense. And, and people latch on to that. And some of that money runs that direction just because of the label. And I wonder, is that part of the problem? Is there such a thing as a good unicorn? Is the notion of the unicorn flawed? Or is it, you know, how do you see that? Yeah, sure there are. So I think the Vision Fund is also an investor in Slack. And Slack is a great company and is gaining momentum and is creating tens of billions of dollars in stakeholder value. So, you know, I'm sure they're going to have other winners in their portfolio. Uh, and w- what you have is this, this competence of visionary storytelling, where your ability to paint a vision of future results in access to cheap capital that gives you the ability to kind of create your future. You know, to a certain extent, that's what Tesla did. That's what Netflix did. That's what Jeff Bezos did in his 1997 investor letter. When you listen to Jeff Bezos speak, you want to buy stock. And as a result, they have access to cheaper capital than anywhere else. So hmm. if you and I are both boxers and I get 100% or you get 100% pure oxygen, but I only get 88% pure oxygen because my investors demand I reinvest 12 cents in the dollar like most traditional companies, but you get 100% pure oxygen, you don't need to be a better boxer than me. Eventually, I'm going down. And the ability to get access to pure oxygen comes through this visionary storytelling. And there's a thin line in the unicorn economy between vision. BS and fraud. Mm-hmm. And you just want to be far enough out on the vision line, you know, like a Tesla or a Netflix that at one point looked like, or even Amazon yeah, said they had right, raised, right. people said Amazon had raised too much money in debt. Amazon's stock was largely flat for a better part of a decade. But their ability to kind of, if you will, fake it till you make it, raise enough capital, and then build or grow into their future or build that, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy, 
that strategy is a tangible, productive strategy. Now, has it been superjuiced on kind of a crazy, unhealthy type of steroid where people go from vision to yoga babble and find stupid capital that will overfund the business to the extent that it will ever never be kind of money good or get their investors their money back? Yeah, absolutely. But there are instances where that vision, you know, there's a good question. What would happen to Theranos if Elizabeth Holmes had been able to raise another several billion dollars and maybe <laughs> yeah, they did stumble right. into a breakthrough? <laughs> right. Instead, she's likely going to prison. So it's fake it till you make it. Is it a small F or a capital F? But if you're willing to write multi-billion dollar checks, no matter how many of them are out there, I'll find more entrepreneurs willing to cash them. So how do you determine the goods from the bads? I mean, how do you figure out in this environment that this one's for real and this one's faking it and dancing it a little bit too hard? I mean, I suppose you could go through the S1 if that's the place that a company is, is in when it comes to its evolution. But, but other than that, how do you know? Well, you, you don't know, but you can make educated guesses. And there are firms that have built uh, incredible franchises, brands, and stakeholder value and wealth for their principals because they do know what to do or they don't know what to do, but they know how to starch out a lot of the risk and make better bets, uh, whether it's uh, a Kleiner Perkins, an Andreessen Horowitz, a General Catalyst. There are VCs that know how to assess a management team have the people, the operating executives to evaluate the underlying technology, have great business minds in their partnership that can look at the marketplace, understand the diligence to really kick the tires and say, what are our costs of customer acquisition? What is different about this concept? What are the moats? What is the capital structure? You know, what is the complexion of the management team? What is their ability to scale this, generate shareholder value, stakeholder value? What is the competitive landscape? And there are venture capital firms and alternative investors who have been able to more often than not invest in companies. No one gets it 100% right all of the time. In VC, you hope that generally speaking, um, you know, about half your companies go sideways or down, you know, 40% probably return zero, go out of business. And you hope that 10% have kind of 10x to 50x like returns. And the most successful venture capital firms in every fun. There's usually one to three companies that paid for everything else, hopefully, hopefully. But there's absolutely things you can do. Venture capital is a a sector that has made several companies and dozens of people exceptionally, or even several hundred or maybe even several thousand, although it's a pretty concentrated industry, very wealthy. And it's not just guessing. They do have they do have a distinct skill set. And sure, is there anything you can do to guarantee you're right? No, but there's a lot you can do to reduce the likelihood you're going to be wrong. You used um, a term that is one of my favorites in the entire series. You talked about yoga babble, and you used it just a few minutes ago. Maybe as a result of what happened with WeWork, people become, you know, they can tune in more on the yoga babble and be more skeptical of it. I think that's probably a, a, at least one likely outcome. But there's another term that you used. You talked about the unicorn industrial complex, taking you back to the warning that Dwight David Eisenhower gave about the military industrial complex, of course. But we're in it when it comes to the military industrial complex. That's here. What I'm wondering is if the unicorn industrial complex, if we are in that too, and there's no real way to get out of it, do we want to get out of it? Is we work a kind of anomaly? Or how do you see it? How do you see the landscape now? 
Oh, we absolutely have a unicorn industrial complex. And that is we have a series of players or an industry that is largely built on building great companies and a lot of times not great companies, but creating the illusion of greatness and value. So the reason why Masayoshi-san invested a $47 billion market capitalization wasn't even necessarily thought it was worth $47 billion, but it sets a value right before you go public. And if the smartest guys in the room, SoftBank, think something's worth $47 and are taking it public, then it must be worth $60, $70, even $100 billion. And what do you know? The other smartest guys in the room, the equity analysts at J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, also say it might be worth $50, $60, $100 billion. And they're smarter than me. I'm a fireman. I'm an investor. I'm a house husband, whatever it might be. I don't have the time to do the due diligence. I don't have the domain expertise. But if SoftBank, Goldman, and J.P. Morgan are telling me that WeWork is worth $50, $60, $100 billion, it must be. And then if my private wealth manager from Morgan Stanley is calling me and saying, good news, I can get you shares in the WeWork IPO. There's a complex, there's a momentum, there's professionals who make their living on marketing these stocks and ensuring that ensuring that there's a perception of value and justifying what are, quite frankly, irrational valuations right out of the gates. And that's the bad news. And that's existed for a long time. The good news is that the markets did their job here. And that is a bunch of media analysts, academics, and generally just private market investors looked at the S1 of WeWork and said, okay, we let Uber get through the firewall and a lot of people lost money. We're closing the firewall. We're not going to let this happen. And regardless of what valuation SoftBank put into this company, it makes absolutely no sense. The language here is ridiculous. And we're gonna we're not gonna buy this thing. And then where it was really over, David, when I knew the thing was over and that this thing was borderline on the board of collapse, was when they went out and tried to market at 47 billion. The market threw up on it, rejected it, and they came out and floated a trial balloon of well, what about 20 billion? And if you're an insider and you know the company, and if you know your house and you think, oh, my house is worth $100,000, and then the, the market, you have an open house and people say, no, we're not paying 100,000. And then you go back to those people and say, would you buy it for 50? There's mold, there's something wrong in the house. When someone is willing to take a 50% cut on an asset in 72 hours, it means there's trouble. And that's when I knew this thing was entering into a downward spiral. And, and then within seven days, Newman was out, the IPO was over, and ultimately this thing got financed at a valuation of $8 billion, which, quite frankly, it didn't deserve. It got that because Masayoshi-san needed to save face and ensure that he was the one that bailed it out, not American vultures. We Crashed is supported by Vistaprint. For small business owners or people who produce their own podcasts, being plugged in and prepared when an opportunity comes up is crucial. Those moments happen all the time. They're happening now. And having a business card that shows how professional you are in your pocket, ready to hand out, well, that could be the first step to making something big happen. And Vistaprint is here to help you own the now with free shipping on any business card in any quantity. Just plug your information and logo into hundreds of fresh designs tailored to your type of company or upload your own original layout. With Vistaprint, it's easy to create something as unique and compelling as your business and your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed or your money back. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation, which is why listeners of We Crashed will get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Just go to vistaprint.com and enter promo code 
crashed. For free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity. Now, this is a limited time offer, so don't wait. Own the now, right now, at Vistaprint.com. Don't forget the promo code, CRASHED. Professor Scott Galloway is launching a new podcast called The Prof G Show with Scott Galloway on March 19th. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts for a no-mercy, no-malice take on how you can level up your game in the world of business. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a special preview of The Prof G Show with Scott Galloway. When I first heard about the WeWork story, it was... After a lot of people had been talking about it for some time, I'm sure you had been plugged in way before a lot of other folks. And I remember thinking, okay, well, um, this is, uh, in, in a way, one of those companies that sort of represents an era. I wasn't thinking that it would explode or that it would fall apart or that it would be all you know, sound and fury signifying nothing. I sort of figured that maybe this represented something new, something that, you know, and this is before you know, the S1 and, and all of that. Were you on the lookout for the next sort of Enron-esque collapse? Or was there something that kind of rang a bell in your head that said, look out, this isn't adding up? No, I, I don't think I was uh, prescient enough to really think of it as the next Enron or uh, what it, you know, this initially was, uh, if you will, a mistake for me. And that is, and I think it was early 2017, I went on Business Insider and recorded a video. And I like to make predictions. And my prediction or what I said was that WeWork was the most overvalued private company in the world because it had recently raised money and I think about a $22 billion market capitalization. And a few months later, it raised money to $47 billion valuation. So immediately I was wrong. It was whenever you get in the way, the worst thing you can do is to kind of get in the way of a venture capitalist or the the chorus of innovators and kind of the the wheel spinning of these companies uh, deserve these crazy market valuations. And if you're ever skeptical of it, you're seen as a Luddite and you get the, the people who don't do teach and you're just jealous. So out of the gates, I was immensely wrong. I said a company was overvalued and a few months later, it got double the valuation. Uh, but this was, I mean, there were just some fascinating things here. If you did any sort of basic analysis, I think the first analysis I did of this company was I looked at how many locations they had. I looked at their valuation and looked at an average value of the building and determined that the floor that WeWork leased with its IPA tap beer and reclaimed wood was now worth more than the entire building <laughs> which it was uh, which it had leased a floor in it just didn't it just didn't add up and it just got it just got more and more kind of emblematic as you said it marked the age and it marked the consensual hallucination that venture capitalists try and enter into with the marketplace such that they can foist this stock at some point on retail investors. But it seems like there is some, I mean, you, you, we talk about the age here. There is something about the era that made it possible for WeWork to happen. Because if you stood back, outsider looking in, without being affected by any of the hype or hysteria or what have you, it's probably pretty easy to say, okay, well, this is this is a company that leases buildings and then releases subleases to other people. That simple. There's no way that it's going to be worth what people are talking about. So what I'm wondering is how was it that this blew up into something other than what it clearly was by any objective measure? Yeah, you're right. There's a business in buying long, buying an asset that you have to commit to for several years, whether it's a car or an office building, and then selling it short leasing it for 10 years, 
a year, three weeks, renting the car for a week, 24 hours, or even an hour. And those companies, Hertz or Real Estate Investment Trust, usually trade at a multiple of revenues of anywhere between, call it, 0.1 to 2 times revenues. And here was a company trading at 16 times revenue in the private markets, and whereas Amazon trades at four times revenue. So it wasn't that it wasn't a good idea. It wasn't that there wasn't value here. What we had was this perfect storm of an excess amount of capital, a kind of a luxury brand positioned as a, or an alternative investments company called Vision One Fund positioned as a luxury brand that got extraordinary capital and thereby the sense of urgency to deploy massive amounts of capital. And there was a charming factor with a visionary Steve Jobs-like charisma and storytelling capability paired with a company that had too much capital to put to work, all set in the context of an innovator's economy where I believe because church attendance and reliance on a super being is going down in the U.S. that we look for our new Jesus Christ. I think if there was anything that kind of gave rise to this, it was probably Steve Jobs who created sort of a Jesus Christ-like image around his persona by creating magic from technology and letting us think different and creating kind of the currency of power, which is wealth from innovation or wealth from public markets, NASDAQ stock. And this all kind of came together for this perfect storm that resulted in an individual. And what's historic here is that we have an individual who managed to clip a $2.5 billion commission for losing $17 billion of other people's money. Well, yeah, that's, <laughs> gosh, when you put it that way, absolutely. It's just all, I mean, it's shocking, really. But I want to get back on this I, this note that you just touched on about the religiosity of WeWork. A lot of it was wrapped up in, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but uh, a, a sort of uh, idolization of uh, Adam Newman, it seemed like. And, and I'm fascinated by this notion that maybe part of what made WeWork a spectacular, you know, success story, at least for a while, was this idea that w- that it was almost a, a proxy or a fill-in for something missing, maybe. You touched on religiosity, and you think about some of what happened here with Adam Newman sort of as a stand-in for almost, as you put it, a sort of a Christ figure, yeah. in a way. Well, look, as a as a species, our competitive advantage is that our brain is so big that we're expelled from the body prematurely. You know, the humans should really cook for another trimester or another three months, but because we have such enormous brains, we have to be expelled from the body. And our brain is big enough to ask very complicated questions, but it's not big enough to answer them. And so into that void slips a super being. And as countries get, as I referenced before, get wealthier and more educated, the reliance on a super being or church goes down. But we still have that void of the unknowing and a need for people to answer our questions. And the closest thing we have to almost sort of religious religious or godlike superpowers is technology. Technology put a man on the moon, which none of us know how to do or even understand. It arrested the AIDS virus. It turned back Hitler through splitting the atom. So we look at technology as being somewhat godlike or magical or spiritual, and thereby the deliver the iconic people who run these companies take on a certain Jesus-like aura. And we all want to believe that these people talking about renting a desk in flowery language, it's talking about unleashing the inner community within all of us who are all part of I mean, this sounded like instead at an all-hands meeting, I run small companies where I'm talking about cost of customer acquisition and talking about our, you know, our profit margins. He was talking like Yoda, you know, he was talking and telling people what they should or shouldn't eat. 
and the power of we and how community is the new power that's going to reshape the world, when at the end of the day, they were renting desks. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a certain uh, cult-like mentality in these companies that is dangerous. So cults, cults are overinvestment in an individual, I think, is dangerous. And typically, just historically, we look at cults. Cults typically don't end well. Yeah, typically they don't. But I want to get back to something that you said about the technology factor here and the fetishization, you know, of, of these, of technology and, and its leaders. There wasn't anything especially high tech about WeWork, right? No, it was an illusionist trick. And that is the kind of the technicization of companies where they're like, well, it's a mattress company that sells mattresses that are manufactured in factories that manufacture other mattresses. So there's no unique, there's no unique manufacturing here. They sell them on the internet, but they try to create this illusion of technology, and that's Casper, that it's a tech company, a consumer tech company. Well, are you, you know, Peloton, which I do think there is some technology, says that it's delivering happiness. Well, are you or are you just selling exercise equipment? And in the case of renting desks, that was an even bigger stretch. And I believe they use the term technology 123 times in their S1. And when you do any sort of diligence, you found that they had an app for booking conference rooms and they had a very elegant website. But, you know, my guess is Wondery has dramatically more technology acumen than we work. Is it appropriate to put all of this on Adam Newman? Or what about those who surrounded Adam Newman? I mean, I think back to the episodes. I don't remember whether it was episode three or four, but it it was at the point where Masayoshi son of SoftBank hands over the keys in a way to Adam Newman. He puts this enormous valuation on the company and makes this massive multi-billion dollar investment. And then he tells Adam Newman, go spend it and get crazy. Just go crazy. I want to see you get crazy. Who, what, what entrepreneur do you know would say, nah, I don't think so, you know, to the person who's just given them billions? Surely you're going to want to live that life, e- even if nobody told you to live that life. Yeah, that's 100% right. If you tell a 30-something-year-old male that he's Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. And if you really go back to the first domino here that created this, that sort of set off or kind of patient zero or action zero, Masayoshi-san is responsible for or can credit or can be credited with what is arguably the most successful private investment in history, and that is he put $20 million in Alibaba and turned it into $100 billion. So the most extraordinary investment in the history of the private markets. And I think if there's a virus or if there's a danger across the venture capital of the private markets, and I think it's a danger that is pretty common among people, I would argue, especially young males in the tech industry, and it's I think it's, a, it's an interesting learning for all of us, it's that we have a tendency to, as a species to conflate luck or talent for just luck. And when you make the most successful private investment in the world, it's very easy to believe that you, Masayoshi-san, have the gut that is a breakthrough in vision and ability to discern uh, new ideas. And I think Masayoshi-san kind of took that to the next level where he would see something different or creative in an individual or an idea and felt it was his role to encourage them to think bigger. And then the fact that it was sitting on $100 billion and needed to be deployed created a toxic mix of, a, of an individual who, again, had conflated luck for talent or an exceptional intuitive gut. And then you combine that with capital, and it resulted in Masayoshi-san finding these people 
who were more than happy to try and fake it until they made it. If there is a scenario where WeWork raised another $10 billion, started rolling up more and more real estate, and maybe never realized a $47 billion valuation, but maybe realized a $20 or $30 billion valuation, and Adam Newman would be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal a dozen times between now and then. The fact that, you know, him cashing Masayoshi's son's check does not make him especially strange or a criminal. The kind of the, the flaw or the glitch in the matrix here started with a level of hubris stemming from the world's most successful investment and too much capital facing too few ideas. Scott, at the end of the day, though, what is the moral of this story? You know, Adam Newman, when we last see him in episode six, he's flying off to Israel with his wife, and um, he's not a poor fellow. I mean, on the one hand, you sort of want to say, well, how do you advise entrepreneurs to, you know, structure their company or structure their business in such a way that it won't become the house of cards? On the other hand, Adam Newman doesn't altogether appear the complete loser here. There are a lot of people who lost everything. So, I mean, what, what's the moral of this story? I think there's several lessons. I think it goes all the way back to Masayoshi-san's initial investment and him thinking that gave him some exceptional ability. I think it's dangerous to conflate luck with talent. I think that there is lessons around the smartest people in the room aren't necessarily the smartest people in the room, that you need to do your own diligence around investments. I do believe this is testament to the Securities and Exchange Commission and our marketplace that this thing... When you think about it, the losses were largely ring-fenced to institutional investors, specifically SoftBank, the Mubalaba Fund, and PIF uh, from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So for me, the biggest lesson, and it's something that's given me huge comfort and something I tell all of my students, and it's one of the few truisms that's held for me, is that nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. Scott Galloway teaches brand strategy and digital marketing at the NYU Stern School of Business, and he's the author of two books, The Four and The Algebra of Happiness, Notes on the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. He's a co-host of Pivot, a news commentary podcast, and he writes a weekly newsletter, No Mercy, No Malice. And on top of all of that, he's been a consulting producer on our podcast, We Crashed. Professor Galloway, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us and for all your help in the production of, uh, of our series. We certainly do appreciate it, and it's great to get a chance to talk with you today. Thanks, David. Congrats on the series. From Wondery, this is We Crashed, about what happens when idealism and greed run headlong into business reality. You can subscribe to We Crashed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to hear more great business stories, you can subscribe to another Wondery podcast I host called Business Wars, which takes you inside some of the greatest corporate rivalries of all time. And you can get access to both series ad-free on Wondery Plus at wondery.com P-L-U-S. If you like what you've been listening to, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. Another way to support us is by answering a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm your host, David Brown. Natalie Robomed wrote this story. Heather Schrering reported this story. This episode was produced by Lata Panya. Production assistance by Melissa Duenas. Sound design by Jake Gorski. Our consultants are Corey Weinberg for the information and Scott Galloway. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman, George Lavender, and Marsha Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery.
As you can hear from our interview today, Scott Galloway has an incisive mind and a -a one-of-a-kind personality. You may know him as the co-host of the podcast Pivot with Kara Swisher, or perhaps you've heard of his legendary lectures at the NYU School of Business. He started nine businesses and served on a dozen boards. Well, now he has a new podcast where you can learn from his expertise and hear from the other leading voices in the business world on all the topics that matter most. You're about to hear a trailer for the Prof G Show with Scott Galloway. While you're listening, make sure to subscribe to the new Prof G Show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. You can also find the show at section4.com slash podcast. All right, Scott, we're going to bang out the Prof G Podcast promo. Take it away. Okay, no problem. Let's do it. Okay. That's right, bitches. The dog has oh, a pod. Scott, I, you know, I don't know if we want to call people bitches. And not sure people know who the dog is either. No, no. Okay, no problem. No problem. Hi, everyone. This is Scott Galloway, the Prof G Podcast. What is a podcast? They suck, but the dog's pod sucks and, uh, less. You know, I don't know about what? the negative no, not angle. Good. Let's not try. Good. Let's try positive. Okay. Four words to describe the Prof G Podcast. The first and second, Shama and Lama. The third and fourth, Ding and Dong. Show up for Prof G. That was positive. Not sure that made any sense, though. Got it, got it. Okay, okay. All right, pull it together. My name is Scott Galloway. I'm a professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. I've taught over 4,700 students, served on 12 boards, started nine businesses. Some of them worked, some of them haven't. I want you to be successful professionally and personally. Every week, we're going to take an unfiltered, full body contact, no mercy, no malice view of the business world and what can be learned. Show up to Prof G. We're going to have office hours, expert interviews. Prof G launches on March 19th. You heard a D-Day. Well, this is dog day, March 19th. Show up to Prof G podcast. Hey guys, I'm Nikki Boyer, host of The Daily Smile. Jasmine Williams found her destiny at just 14 years old. I just remember it sounded so cool, so dope. It was like rap and MC and monologue and feelings and everything. And that was my first introduction. I said, I want to do that. Now she's sharing her passion and her art with people all over the world. Listen to Coming Full Circle at the Poetry Lounge on The Daily Smile on Wondery Plus, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 